Very well done. Thank you for that great song and uh, great piano playing and uh, how we all should really be able to say that. How can I keep from singing your praise? It's good to see you all this morning and uh, very excited about this week. And uh, I understand that uh, last week was a great time uh, for the college student body to hear about soul winning, to be involved in soul winning. And the Bible says, he that winneth souls is wise. And uh, sometimes you'll use the term soul winning and, and uh, non-soul winners uh, will say silly things. I've, I've had them say things like, well, you're not the soul winner, you know. And, uh, and what they mean by that is that the Holy Spirit regenerates and he's the one that makes possible the new birth. And how many of you believe that the Holy Spirit's the soul winner? We understand that, right? Um, and uh, so they like to say that, and uh, sometimes they like to use terms like evangelism or, you know, witnessing, both of which are great terms. I just like to use the term soul winning because it's typically identified with the DNA of an independent Baptist, kind of more of an aggressive church that's really after it. They're not talking about relationship building and bridge building and Tonka toy building and things like that. They're talking about winning souls, you know. Uh, it tends, uh, you know, those that are, uh, those that really have an aggressive spirit love that term. And the Bible says, he that winneth souls is wise. And there is something to be said for the fact that as we walk in the spirit and as we have a heart for the lost, there should be something engaging about us, something the Spirit of God is directing, that ultimately God will use us to get the word out and the power of the Spirit, and souls will be saved. So I'm glad that you've had a part in reaching out. I do want to challenge you very briefly. Uh, you know, the Lord has not commissioned us to win doors. He's commissioned us to win souls. And a lot of times, if we're not careful in a time like this, we can put all the emphasis on uh, on inviting, but not enough emphasis on bringing, right? So there really are two different concepts, right? And when you study the way that the New Testament church really started, uh, it started with those early disciples bringing their brother and bringing their friend. Uh, not merely inviting, but bringing. So by now, all of us have uh, invited. Uh, and I, uh, I'm excited about that. But I also believe in committing and bringing. And so that's what I want to challenge you to think about right now. Now let's just take a little survey. How many of you think that between friends at work or some doors that you knocked last week, you would say, Brother Chapel, I think it's a conservative estimate to say that I've talked to, not how many doors you've knocked on, but that you would say, I have talked to 10 people about being my guest at Open House Sunday. How many of you would say 10 is a fair number? Uh, how many of you have not talked to 10? Raise your hand, all right? Wow, we've got a ways to go then. What have you been doing? <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe you went out once and you, you put some flyers on the door. I don't know. Maybe that's what you were told to do. Again, we're, we're not winning doors. We're winning souls, right? So uh, if you have not talked to someone yet, then in the next three days, I want to challenge you. Talk to someone about coming to be your guest at Lancaster Baptist. So how many of you have not talked to someone? Let me see where you are. It's all right. You've been out. You've knocked on some doors. You haven't talked to someone, but maybe you've talked to less than 10. How many of you have talked to less than 10? Let me see your hands, all right? So here's my challenge for you that have talked to less than 10. First of all, go to the 10 or less that you've talked to and do your best to commit one to be a part of this special Sunday next Sunday, right? 
And then for those of you that have talked to less than 10, I would encourage you to go out and talk to others. I don't care if they're in the parking lot somewhere, if they're at a park, if they're at the mall, wherever you find somebody today, you can talk to somebody. Uh, and then those of you that have talked to more than 10, you need to be making a list of where were they and who are they. Now, this is not something that I can put in your heart to have compassion for lost souls. It's something the Holy Spirit will put there. But when you get that spirit of compassion, and I find if you don't get it now, you're going to have trouble just getting it when you get into the ministry. If you have that spirit of compassion and wanting to be a soul winner, then what I want to encourage you to do is, if you have, say, 22 people that you've talked to, to go back to those people today, tomorrow, Saturday for your soul winning time, whenever your schedule is, and go back to those streets and say, hey, I just wanted to come back by. We talked last week, and you said that you would come, and I'm going to be in the second service, the 10th row, and just kind of personalize that. Can we sit together for the lunch? Uh, every college student that has a guest, come on out here. It's going to be on the east side of the worship center after both services. There's going to be a meal. Bring your guest. Enjoy the meal. But what I want to emphasize and I want you to be thinking about is not just the inviting, but the bringing. If you understand what I'm talking about, say amen. amen. All right? So think about who is it that I can bring with me this Sunday? And uh, I know uh, yesterday as I went out and knocked on a bunch of doors, uh, I had several people that committed to me. But uh, I'm going to go back by those homes Saturday and just quickly, uh, hey, just want to remind you, tomorrow's the day, and, uh, and get those commitments from those folks. And so uh, what I'm talking with you about right now is the difference between some men uh, who run 40 and some who run 400 or 4,000. Now, if you're in a town of 80 and you run 40, that's awesome. I understand there's, there's different situations. But what I'm saying is uh, sometimes uh, pastors who are not passionately following up are not going to see uh, sometimes the harvest. And so we want to take this uh, to our hearts and we want to think about who have I talked to and have they committed and are, am I going to be bringing them in? Some of you actually might bring someone uh, to church in your car, literally bringing them in. But be sure to be thinking and praying about who are the 12, who are the 20, who are the 6 that you've met, that you've talked to, and what can you do between now and Sunday morning to help see them committed. And that will be a principle that I think will help you in your whole ministry uh, to learn how to keep lists like that and go back and recommit them to come uh, and you'll find that there will be those that will come because of that passion that you display and because you don't just, you know, put a flyer on the door. Okay, we did it. Let's go to McDonald's. What do we do next? But you remember someone. Uh, I, I tell you, there's a verse in Galatians that convicts me along this line. And Paul the Apostle said, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. And the, the philosophy there is that no one is just one and done. How many of you are glad that someone took time again and again with you? So, so the idea that you just throw a flyer down or just talk to someone real quickly is not the comprehensive idea of discipling. So you've got to learn to travail again with someone. You say, but Brother Chapel, I went to their door, I talked to him, I did what you said, I did what the college said, and that's good. But now, my little children of whom I travail again. And so many times people need that second and third reminder. And so I hope something I just said helped you to just form a little philosophy about how to reach people for Christ and how to win souls. And so let's take our Bible at this time. If you would, please turn to the book of Acts and chapter number 24. Acts chapter 24. And would you stand with me, please? 
we had a tremendous uh, missions trip to Romania, and I appreciate your prayers. And in the month of November, uh, coming up just right around the corner, uh, my wife Terry and I are going to host a, a kind of a, a pizza night for all the students. I think it's on a Sunday night. We'll announce the date. Uh, and I'd like to show you some of the slides from the uh, Romania missions trip and also from the uh, stopover we had in London, England, a few things the Lord taught us there and, and maybe do some Q&A. So uh, you can be thinking of real hard questions for me or for my wife if you like, but we look forward to doing that once or twice a year and we'll do that in the month of November. I'm going to read one verse for the sake of time and I'll try to give you a little bit of the historical context by way of the introduction. Uh, but just for the sake of time, let's read in uh, Acts chapter 24. This is the Apostle Paul uh, and his testimony, uh, as uh, we'll see in just a moment, uh, as he is standing before the governor of Caesarea. And in verse 16, he says something that I believe, if you do not have a life's verse, how many of you have a life's verse? Let me just see. How many of you, all right. how many of you don't have one yet? Let me see where you are. All right, good. I'm going to give you one right now. You're going to love it. My brothers, uh, in particular, my, my brother Mark, who's like a year or two younger than me, he used to always take everybody's Bible and sign it and put his life verse in it. No one ever asked him to do it. He just did it, you know. So um, anyways, uh, he's, he's, uh, uh, he was uh, interesting growing up with him. So uh, hopefully uh, you'll not just sign this. But this verse, if you don't have a life's verse, is a great verse to consider for your life verse. And if you do have a life's verse, then you can make this your number two life's verse, okay? Uh, Acts 24, 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, you're going to see with me this morning, this is the way to live your life. So I want you to read this verse with me. Acts 24, 16. Ready, begin. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful spirit we've sensed already in chapel this morning. And Lord, uh, I just want to thank you for Dr. Getch and all of our leadership here, just for the labor and the love that I sense from them every day for the student body. Thank you for little things like the new computer program and the campus uh, administration program. Thank you for our uh, privilege to have chapel today. I pray that you would help us this morning. Uh, let me be a blessing to our students. Lord, there's a world that needs to hear the gospel. And so maybe this verse could be a help to someone today. And I ask that you would use me, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In our text this morning, we have Ananias and Tertullus accusing the Apostle Paul. If you look back briefly, you'll find in verse 1, after five days Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor against Paul. So here we have Tertullus who would be something like a modern day version of the ACLU. He was an attorney, he was an orator, and he's coming to accuse the Apostle Paul before the governor of Caesarea, a man by the name of Felix. And as this accusation is being made against the Apostle Paul, as you read through the early portion of Acts 24, 
The Apostle Paul, amongst other things, is referred to as a pestilent fellow. Notice that in verse 5. We have found this man to be a pestilent fellow. Uh, he is a ringleader of the Nazarenes. He is being referred to as a problem, if you will. Now, mark down in your mind, preachers, that if you intend to stand for God, there will be times when the world views you as a troublemaker. Because everyone else is doing gay marriage, why won't you? And everyone else is lax in their way of living. Why don't you just lighten up? And the world was viewing Paul as a problem, as a pestilent fellow. And so oftentimes in society today, in a, in a culture like ours, when someone says, well, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's my authority. And I believe that uh, men and women ought to follow the teaching of the Word of God, uh, that God's Word is given to us uh, without error. When you have these standards and these convictions, the culture at large does not appreciate uh, the position that you take on the Word of God. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. His message of the cross uh, was not broad enough. After all, he said that uh, Jesus was the only way to heaven. After all, he believed in the resurrection. And after all, he claimed to be one of these apostles and so forth. And so he's brought before the government as the problem. Now, more and more in society, people are saying, you know what? Anybody that's fundamental, whether it's a Muslim or a Baptist, that's the problem, society is saying. The problem are these people with these strong convictions. They are they're pestilent. They're just uh, problematic for our society. And what we need to do is we just need to all hold hands. The witchcraft people, the Buddhist people, the Christian people, the Muslim people. And we need to all sing Kumbaya and stop being so fundamental in what we believe. Now the problem with this is that the resurrection happens to be one of our fundamentals. The literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the blood atonement, the inspiration of the scriptures, and even marriage between a man and a woman, we consider that to be very fundamental to our faith. And what I'm telling you is if you think you can be in the ministry and this culture is going to be happy, you say, well, I, no, 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 Brother Jeff, what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm just going to be a little more casual. I'm going to just try a little bit of rock music and I'm not going to preach so much against the sin and, you know, we're just going to sneak Jesus up on those people. I'm telling you, if you're worth your salt as a preacher, if you stand for anything, there are going to be people who literally will hate you for what you believe. Someone says, wow. I'm going to go to a community college and learn how to be a mechanic. Everybody likes a good mechanic. Well, if life is all about everybody liking you, that might be a good idea for you. But if life is all about helping people to know Jesus, then you're in just the right place. But I'm just trying to be honest with you this morning to say, not everybody is always happy with someone who stands up for the truth. But it's amazing to me, in the midst of this, and by the way, just try to picture, and I've, I've been there to Caesarea, and I try to picture in my mind Paul standing there, and here's the governor looking at him, and here's this ACLU attorney accusing him. And Paul, in the midst of his defense, says these words in verse 16. He says, Herein do I exercise myself, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. It's as if he's saying, look, you can say whatever you want to say about me. 
but I know what I do every day. I know how I live every day. And he says, herein do I exercise myself to have a conscience that's right with God and a conscience that's right with men. Now, you'll have days where the world hates you, where people in the church are frustrated with you. You may have days when, when people that you never thought would be upset with you are upset with you. You're just going to have days like that, and it's during those days when you want to make sure that you are right with God and that you're right with others. Because if you're not right with God and everything else is coming down around you, you're going to quit. But if you could say this, I know the world's not happy. And I know that guy may not be happy, but I know this. Everything's right with me and the Lord. You're going to get through. Is that making sense to you? So Paul's saying, look, you can say what you want, but my conscience is clear. I have a clear conscience. So I want to speak to you just for a few moments about living your life with that kind of a conscience. Living your life with a conscience that pleases God. The message is entitled, Serving God with a good conscience. Say it with me, please. Serving God. One more time. Serving God with a good conscience. Now quickly, I want to define the the word conscience, the definition of the conscience. The Bible speaks of it here in verse 16 as a conscience void of offense. And very quickly, in the Bible, we have several different kinds of consciences mentioned. We have, first of all, the good conscience. Acts 23 and verse 1, and Paul, earnestly beholding the counsel, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith in a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. So, uh, shipwreck. So you have the word good conscience. 2 Timothy 1 and 3, whom I serve, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. Now let me say to you that there is no softer pillow than a good conscience. There's no better way to live your life than with a good conscience. If suddenly there's a meeting for all the men on campus, you don't have to wonder, oh, am I busted? Oh, did someone see me do that? You have a good conscience. And this conscience is developed by the Holy Spirit working in you, by you being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit teaching you and guiding you. 2 Corinthians 1 and 12 says, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have our conversation in the world and more abundantly toward you. Paul said, the reason I have this conversation, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this, the reason I have this good testimony is because I've kept my conscience good or right with God. And so this good conscience is something uh, that is so vital to live your life with. And I find that a lot of times the people with the very best consciences are those that just got saved. There's something about someone that just got saved. I've seen them. They'll come forward every time I preach because the Lord's just pricking their conscience and saying, Whoa, I didn't know Led Zeppelin was wrong. i got to go forward and lay that down on the altar. Wow, I didn't realize it was wrong to, to, to cuss. I'm going to lay that down. You're supposed to pray for your meals. Lord, I'll pray for my meals. I mean, a new Christian, it's just one thing right after another. It's just like fireworks going off. They have this conscience that's so wonderfully open to the Lord. It's a 
good conscience. It's working really well. Uh, a conscience is like a window that lets the light in, right? And when you first get saved, light's just flooding in, right? Now, when you're 22 and you've been saved for four years, sometimes the light doesn't come in as clearly. We'll talk about that in a moment. But how many of you remember when you first got saved? Anybody remember that? Man, I'm telling you, when you first get saved, you want others to get saved. When you first get saved, you want to live closely with the Lord. So the Bible defines the good conscience. If you're taking notes, letter B, the Bible defines a defiled conscience. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto, him that are, unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Now, this is a man whose conscience is not letting the light through as clearly. This defiled conscience is a conscience that has allowed some sin to make its effect. It could have been a pop-up on the computer that should have been dismissed, but they spent some time there. It could be some gossip that was heard. It could be something that was seen on social media. The devil has a lot of ways of defiling someone's conscience. But here you have a man that had a good conscience. Everything was right between him and the Savior. And now something has defiled it. The good conscience, you could see clearly what God wants. The defiled conscience is the conscience that's spotted up. There's some problems. There's some cloudiness. Things that used to bother you don't bother you quite as much anymore. And this conscience is not a safe guide. There's a third kind of conscience. That is the evil conscience. The evil conscience. Let us draw near, Hebrews 10, 22, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our conscience, our, having, our, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, an evil conscience is, is a result of consistent sin. One man saw a pop-up, stayed on it for a minute, deleted it, repented of his sin. His conscience was defiled, but he dealt with it. He got away from it. But then there are those that go back, and they go back, and they think about it, and they lust in their mind. Sometimes they have negative thoughts. They, they gossip. Sometimes uh, uh, they're involved in various forms of sin, and their conscience is no longer tender to the Lord. I mean, in other words, they sit in college chapel knowing their life and attitude stinks and never consider repenting, coming forward and making it right. It's an evil conscience. I think of a man named Lot who had an evil conscience in the Bible. I mean, come on. Lot, most scholars would agree, had faith in God. But he's sitting in the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah, yucking it up with them, having a big time with them. Why? His conscience was evil. He no longer cared about what God thought. And we see this. I remember a man sitting in my office telling me that he was going to leave his wife, had already begun living in adultery. I was confronting him of his sin, and he's telling me, you know, and I've never felt closer to God in my life. Evil conscience. Evil conscience. No longer able to really feel the convicting of the Lord. That leads us to the fourth kind of conscience. It's the seared conscience. 
1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that the latter, in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. This person's conscience is so limited in its ability to feel the conviction of God that the person will accept and propagate false teaching. This person with a seared conscience. Imagine uh, coming to that point, some might argue, well, whether or not they were ever saved. Let me just say this. I believe that I've dealt with some people who gave a profession of faith, who showed the fruits of faith, but they allowed, first of all, that little bit of evil, then that dwelling upon evil, then that accepting of evil to the point that they even verbally said, ah, I didn't believe all that stuff. I've seen that with West Coast Baptist College students. Students who come from a good church, good King James, Bible-preaching pastor, good youth pastor. And they come in, and, you know, for a little while, they, they, they come forward. They have a tender heart. They, they ask good questions. They have a good attitude. Then they fall in with the wrong friend. They start uh, cheating on the sign-out sheets. They start uh, cheating at the soul-winning time. They have a bad attitude. By the way, let me just tell you something, my friend. Be sure your sin will find you out. Say, well, nobody knows what I'm listening to, or nobody knows what I'm doing. Oh, listen, number one, God knows. Well, come on, you said amen for Jesse Jones talking about computer. I'm up here preaching the Bible right now. I said, be sure your sin will find you out. And then you'll confront this person. Hey, it's come to our attention that you've been off campus doing this or that. Yeah, well, whatever, you know, that's just what fundies believe. No, that's what Christians believe. Yeah, well, whatever. I can go to Hillsong and play the piano because you can be gay and go there. Fine, listen, you can be gay and do a lot of things, but I'm going to tell you something. You have an evil conscience to think that you can live in sin and debauchery and still please God. It is not pleasing to God to continually live in sin. It just doesn't work that way. You can say all you want about church or your former pastor or the dean of men who called you in, but I'm just saying... The conscience. There are several kinds of consciences. And for the sake of time, how many of you would agree with me that all of us want to live our lives like Paul with a good conscience? If you're with me so far, say amen. I mean, nobody wakes up and says, well, today, let's see how I can defile my conscience. You know, let's go surfing the web for defilement. Nobody does that. And be careful of some of these little tricky little scenarios. I saw someone the other day said, well, I used to think I had to have short accounts with God, but now I realize my account was settled long ago. Yes, it was. That's called positional sanctification. When you got saved, you were accepted by the beloved, completely set apart, and, and thank the Lord for that. But may I say also there's something called progressive sanctification, whereby when there is sin in your life, you don't need to listen to some smart-alecky someone out on social media who says, well, I don't have to keep short accounts with God. Listen, friend, if there's sin in your life, if you care anything about having a good conscience with God, when that conscience has a moment of defilement, you would be wise to repent of that sin and keep short accounts with God. 
These people say, well, I'm under grace. I can just live however I want to live, and I don't have to repent of my sin. I can just go ahead and go on and do whatever I want. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Grace is not your license to sin. Grace is God's way of teaching you to be holy for the Lord Jesus Christ. Many today have perverted the doctrine of grace. So I say to you that every one of us should wake up and say, I want to have a good conscience before the Lord. I want to live my life as the Apostle Paul, who exercised himself this way. So we see the definition of the conscience. I want you to notice, secondly this morning, the development of the conscience. So if everyone here would say, well, Brother Chapel, I want to have a conscience that's right with God. I, I, want, I want the light to shine in. How many of you, even this morning, in this sermon, want the light of Scripture to come right into your heart? How many of you want that this morning, right? Who doesn't want that? Raise your hand. I'll talk with you afterwards. Anybody doesn't want that? Listen, if you have a spiritual mindset, you want, you want the Word of God to come right into your heart. You don't want to have grease on the window. You don't want defilement keeping the light out. You want the Word of God to come in your heart. So if that's what you want, let me tell you how that has developed in your life. Notice what Paul says back to verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself. All right, let's say that together. And herein do I. In other words, keeping a right conscience is not something that happens accidentally. You see a pop-up, boom, you reject it. You see something that used to be a temptation to you, like men who have said to me, I don't even walk by the liquors, uh, the liquor in the grocery store. I just don't want to get by that. Why? Because it, it, it pulls to their conscience. So they stay away from it. In other words, it's an exercise for them. They work at it. It's a discipline in their life. So let me talk with you about exercise. First of all, exercise requires a goal. Okay? People exercise with a goal in mind. It might be weight. It might be cholesterol. It might be uh, many different things for people who exercise. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.25, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. One songwriter said it this way. He said, Take time to be holy. Time rushes on. Spend much time with Jesus alone. So uh, every one of us need to realize that exercise requires a goal. Now, you say, Brother Chapel, listen carefully now. What is the goal with respect to my conscience? What is the goal? Here's where some college students mess up, so listen very carefully. The goal is Jesus Christ. Say it with me. The goal is Jesus Christ. One more time. The goal is Jesus Christ. Why do we want to have a right conscience? So, so that when everyone else is trouble, we're not in trouble? That's secondary. Why do we want to have a right conscience? So that, uh, so that we can uh, not be in trouble with the dean of men? That's secondary. The goal of having a right conscience is that you want to have Christ preeminent in your life. First Thessalonians 4 and 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Listen to that phrase, to please God. The goal of the Christian life is to live for the Lord, to please the Lord. And I know some say, well, I don't have to do anything to please God because I don't even have to keep short accounts with God because I'm just completely accepted. If you don't have to do anything to please God, why does it say in the Bible that you can please God? 
All right, turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 real quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. Because the goal of sanctification is the Lord. It is pleasing the Lord. And it is not wrong to desire to please the Lord. We should desire to please the Lord in our life. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. I want all the men to stand, please. Let's read this together. All the men. Ready? 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. Men, ready, begin. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may... So that he may do what? Please him. How many of you men want to please Jesus? Now, I, I think it's great. Like if you say, Brother Chapel, I hope someday you'll be proud of me as a graduate. I hope I will be too. That would be a wonderful thing. But there's something more wonderful than that. And that is that you would please the Lord. And if someone says, well, I don't have to do anything to please the Lord, they're misunderstanding. You don't have to do one thing to be saved. You don't have to do one thing to be loved by God. You will, you're, you're loved, you'll never be any more loved by God than you are right now. He loves you. But your goal in life should be to please the one who loves you so much. This is what the Bible says. You may be seated. So we have a goal as a church to please Christ, as individuals to please Christ. Now look at, look at, a list of rules does not necessarily please him, but living with a good conscience pleases him. So if having some rules helps you to keep your conscience right, nothing wrong with the rules. Now I'm afraid some of you didn't get that, so I'm going to say it again. A list of rules does not please God. Having a clean heart and a pure conscience pleases God. So if having some rules helps you with your exercise, then rules are fine. But don't live for the rules. Live for Jesus. I know sometimes people, they'll come out of a Bible call and say, it's all about the rules at West Coast. And if you ever say that, you are a fool. Because it is not all about the rules. It is all about Jesus. It is all about living for Jesus, a life that is true. And no man worth his Christian salt that is living for Jesus will not have some convictions and rules in his life. You, you will. You will have some convictions that you will not partake of certain things, just like Daniel of old who purposed in his heart. You will have convictions about getting to the house of God. You'll have convictions about prayer. You'll have convictions about so many things. And I'm just simply saying, the rules, however, are not the goal. Jesus is the goal. So do we believe in having standards? Yes. Do we believe that young ladies should dress modestly? Do we believe that men should abstain from uh, wicked living? Do we, do we believe these things? Yes. Why? Because we want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible speaks of this very clearly. Exercise requires a goal. Exercise requires discipline uh, in our lives. And God calls us to die to self, to be filled with the Spirit. So many things I could say, but there's got to be spiritual disciplines in our life. Notice thirdly, not only the definition of the conscience, not only the development of it, but now let's talk about the display of this conscience. Now Paul says, herein... Do I exercise myself to have always a conscience, and here's the display, void of offense 
toward God and toward men. Now, how many of you get the idea that Paul was living his life with this conscious awareness of what God saw? He said, I want God to see in me a good conscience. Now, Colossians, we mentioned last night, Colossians chapter 3, that we're to live our lives with a heavenly mindset. Set your affection on things that are above. So, God says, I want you in your life to live with a clear conscience in two areas, two venues. First of all, toward the Lord to have a clear conscience. Toward God to have a clear conscience. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're to be separated unto God. Many times we preach about separation. We'll preach about separating from the world's music, the world's dress, the world's styles, whatever. But you know, Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, separated unto God. Separation is not first away from the world. Separation is first unto God. God calls us to be separated unto him. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16 and 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, speaking of Eliab, David's elder brother, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord, say it with me, looketh on the heart. I hope you live your life with that in mind. I hope you live your life with this fact that God sees your heart. Now, sometimes I think I might have some discernment to tell how someone's doing, and sometimes I might see a student whose spirit doesn't look right. Or, uh, but, you know, I'm not always right about that. I've gone up to a student and said, hey, man, what's your problem? What's going on? You know, they'll, they'll start, like, like, crying, like, you know, my dog just died. I'm like, oh, okay, good. I'll pray for your dog or, you know, <laughs> whatever the problem is here. You know? And, and I, can, I, can, I can sometimes guess wrong, but God always knows. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. And Paul said, I just try to live my life every day in such a way that, that when God sees my heart, even, even though the governor's accusing me, that God knows my heart, that my heart is right toward God. Standards are not the goal. God is the goal. And the reason that we put some standards in our life, and there's lots of little things I've tried to do as a preacher, some things that I might do and some things I might advocate, you may not understand until you're a preacher. I don't go to the liquor store to buy sunflower seeds. It's just a standard I have. I, I, want, I, don't, I don't want children seeing me in there. Say, well, you know, you, you don't have to worry about that. You, it's, it's all good. No, I think that way. And I think men of God think that way. Someday you might have a youth group watching you. Someday you might have 37 deacons who love you and pray for you. Someday you might have 10 grandchildren. I, look at, I don't, I don't apologize for having certain standards in my life that might be a good testimony for the flock, but I have those also because I want the Lord to be pleased with my life. Paul said, I exercise myself for this so that toward God I have no offense. I, 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 want, I want to have a heart that's right with God. And so he says, herein do I exercise myself. Now, you guys that are younger, exercise. I saw one of you guys jogging yesterday, just like a little deer, just running around the campus. <laughs> Some of us, it's more like a hippo, you know, <laughs> just trying to get going, you know. I get on some of these machines, and I try to keep things moving. It's not always easy to have standards. It's not always easy to have your prayer time. It's not always easy to do the right thing. But it's always wonderful to know that you're doing 
what God has called you to do. So he says it's toward God. If you're going to be faithful in the ministry, and I don't care if you teach second graders or if you preach a citywide revival for 10,000 people, if you're going to be faithful in the ministry, there's two areas that are going to matter. Number one, how's your testimony toward God? And number two, how's your testimony toward men? Toward God and toward men. Now, I've touched on this briefly toward men. I mentioned my grandchildren. I mentioned the deacons. But let's look at this just briefly because Paul said that I might have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. So how, how does that work? First of all, it, it works through sanctification. Now, sanctification is a doctrine that's under attack. And I've been very direct in my class with my practical theology class just trying to talk about some of the trends of the day this particular semester because there's so much shifting that's taking place. When it comes to the matter of sanctification, the Christian life is still a holy life. God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. In fact, turn, if you would, to a verse, because I want you to see this for a bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a Bible college, so we're allowed to turn to lots of verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You have your Bible? Good. All right, find it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. I'm almost done, sort of. So listen carefully and quickly. Paul says here, concerning sanctification... But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So let's read that last little phrase together. Ready? But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves. So, so. Toward God and toward men, okay? So Brother Getch, for example, let's say he's a member of your church. And Brother Getch is watching you. Or let's say he's a member of your community. And Paul says, I want to live my life in such a way. I don't want to handle the word of God deceitfully. But also he says, by manifestation of the truth. Manifestation, listen class, is not just what I preach. It's the way I live. Is everybody with me on that? So the way I manifest the truth. So I can say, oh, I love Jesus. And then I can turn on, you know, Justin Bieber and I can uh, talk about drinking and partying and I could, I could do all these different things. Oh, I love Jesus. But if I tell you I love Jesus and I'm doing these other things, am I manifesting the truth before you? Yes or no? Come on now. It's not a trick question. If I am listening to the wrong music, if I'm advocating a party lifestyle, if I'm gossiping, if I'm cussing, whatever, you know, you can fill in the blanks. If I'm living a worldly lifestyle and all the while have a fish on my bumper sticker and all the while singing in the choir and all the while, you know, in the, in the band or whatever the church is doing, if I am living a worldly lifestyle, am I manifesting the truth, yes or no? You're not. You, you, you can say you believe in Jesus, but you're not manifesting the truth. So look what happens here. It says, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So, as I live out the truth, Brother Getch is watching me, and in his conscience, he's seeing something that's right. He's seeing something, if he's unsaved, that he needs. My life can help other men, and in his conscience, he's being convicted. 2 Corinthians 5 and 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. The Bible calls us then to be a people that are laboring to please God, but also 
that we might labor to have a testimony that is void of offense toward men. Remember years ago, Dr. Rasmussen went to the Philippines with a bunch of college students and uh, high school students, and they were in a lobby of a hotel at the end of the trip. And the manager of that hotel, listen very carefully, the manager came to Dr. Rasmussen, and he saw our group, and the guys, you know, they didn't all, I don't know if they all had ties, but they probably at least had a polo shirt, and the girls looked sharp, and so forth. And the manager said, are these people Christian? And Dr. Rasmussen said, yes. And, and the manager said, what is the difference between Christian and Catholic? Now, if you know anything about soul winning, that's like waving a red towel at a bull, right? Because everybody wants to tell the difference of those two. And Dr. Rasmussen, long story short, was able to lead the hotel manager to Jesus Christ. But here's the tragedy, and this is why you do need to consider the way you live. You need to consider the manifestation of your gospel. Why? Because the average youth groups that are going on missions trips are dressed so immodestly, their music is so like the world's music, their attitudes are so wrong that the manager of the hotel is never even going to say, are you guys Christian? He's going to assume you're just like all the unsaved. And I kid you not, the average youth groups today, they're emphasizing, hopefully not in our independent Baptist churches, but many youth groups today are emphasizing nothing more than fun and rock music and climbing walls and doing this and that, and yet there's really no manifesting of the truth. I'm going to tell you something. Show me a youth group full of teenagers that love the Lord and have a witness and know they're not perfect, but they're growing in grace, and that's going to convict this unsaved teenager who's watching that. If you understand what I'm saying, say amen. amen. And so Paul said, I've tried to live my life in, in this way, that I would not have offense toward God, and listen, that he would not have done anything that would have caused others to stumble. Now that is what it's like to live with a clear conscience. And if you go to work at Michael's Warehouse today, and you're saying words and have an attitude just like every other unsaved guy. Good luck trying to invite them to your church. Because what you're manifesting is speaking louder than the way you're living. You understand what I'm saying? And then louder than what you're saying. Because your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. The manifestation, the way that you're living your life. Now turn to one more verse. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And hold your spot there in 2 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Because some people say, well, I, I have liberty. I can, I can live how I want. Okay. Since you brought it up. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Everybody tracking with me this morning? 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But take heed, lest by any means this, what's the next word say? Liberty of yours. And I think there's maybe even a little sarcasm there with the Apostle Paul. This liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Okay? There are many reasons that we do not drink alcohol, but one very simple one is this here. Because I don't want anyone coming into my home who struggled with this, seeing something in my house that's going to cause them 
uh, to stumble. God says, don't do anything that's going to cause them to stumble. And he says, don't let this liberty of yours become a stumbling block. And, and we live in a day when people are abusing grace, they're abusing liberty. Even some independent Baptists now getting off into this thing, well, I don't have to keep short accounts with God. I can live however I want to live. And I just want to say, that is not biblical thinking. Use not this liberty of yours to become a stumbling block for others. I can watch any old movie I want to watch. I don't care what the college says. I'm out of here. I can do I'll just watch whatever I want to watch. Somebody's watching you go in there. Say, well, Pastor Chapel, nowadays you can just watch it on your iPad. Someone's looking on your iPad. Make sure that you're not doing anything toward men that would lead them away from Jesus Christ, but that your life is leading them to Jesus Christ. I had a mailman one time that was coming to our church. And again, some of the principles I teach, some of you are like, wow, man, that's just so much. Well, I'm speaking to you from not a freshman in the dorm. I'm speaking to you as a pastor. Is that okay? So let me tell you about a real-life story. This guy's coming to our church, and he'd been saved previously, but he was struggling about getting baptized. So finally one day he comes up to be baptized in the old building, and he got baptized, and afterwards he said to me, he said, you're probably wondering why it took me so long to get baptized, weren't you? I said, well, yeah, I kind of wondered. You know, we'd asked you several times and so forth. He said, well, I got burned at the last church. Those kinds of folks are lovely to pastor, you know, because you're like on trial with them, you know. I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I said, yeah, so I just had to watch you for a while, that last pastor, you know. He said, in fact, he said, I'm your mailman. He said, for the last two years, I've watched every piece of mail gone into your mailbox. He said, in fact, he said, uh, my wife and I have just kind of watched you and your family around the community in different ways. He said, we've watched your wife go in the grocery store and just seen what she's put into the basket. He said, in fact, sometimes... My wife just follows your wife all the way around Walmart. And I got to thinking to myself, that is the most ridiculous thing of it. That's a full-time job right there. <laughs> Follow my wife around Walmart. <laughs> and he said, so we've been watching you for a few years. And we decided that God would be pleased if we got baptized here at Lancaster Baptist Church. I wish I could tell you that I've never done anything that discouraged someone's faith. I, I don't think I could say that. But I'm sure glad that that man saw nothing in me that would hinder him from doing the right thing. That's why it's important to have standards. That's why it's important to have a testimony. That's why you need to be careful of those who belittle sanctification and who talk about their liberty and their grace while they have less and less of a stand for Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says, use not this liberty of yours to become a stumbling block. If you are a stumbling block, you can't say what Paul said. Paul said, herein do I exercise myself to have a life that is void of offense in two areas, toward and toward Say it again, toward and toward, toward God and toward men. And if you're going to be in the ministry, those two things matter. Now, one time I had an evangelist say to me, I don't care what men think. Doesn't that sound spiritual when people say that? I'll preach wherever I want to preach. I'll do whatever I want to do. Now, listen, 
The fear of man is a snare. I understand that. But there's another Bible verse that balances that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I think it does matter what God thinks, and I think it does matter what men think. It's called a testimony. It's called having the right testimony. So if you're going to have the right testimony toward men, it will be in two areas. First of all, sanctification. So that nothing I do is a stumbling block. And finally, and we'll close, if you're going to have the right testimony toward men, you must be a soul winner. How can I have a good conscience toward my neighbor if I've never told him how to go to heaven? How does that happen? Now someone says, oh, here we go again. You know, everything at West Coast boils down to separation and soul winning, separation and soul winning. Welcome to my country. If you have a better answer, you come up here and tell me afterwards. How do you keep a good conscience toward people if you don't live a separated life and if you're not a good soul winner? How do you have a good conscience? How do you work with someone at Rite Aid for two whole years and never tell them that Jesus died for their sin? And how do, how do you have a good conscience in that way? You see, it's going to come down to sanctification and soul winning and manifesting the truth and telling the truth along the way. One more verse and we're done. 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. Please turn there. I had a man hug my neck Sunday morning. His name's Ricky Stamps. Ricky's a tall, retired police officer. He lived in North Carolina. He lived six miles from Bobby Robertson's church all growing up. And uh, he, he never went there. He, never, he, he didn't say they made him feel unwelcome, but he said in the South, a lot of people go to black churches or white churches, and he just never went there because he thought it was a white church. Now, I know Brother Bobby would have been glad to have him, but that was his feeling about it. And uh, I remember going to his house about 15 years ago and sitting down with Ricky, and where are you from, Ricky? Oh, I'm from a place you've never heard of, Walkertown, North Carolina. <laughs> I said, yeah, I never heard of it. Preached there about 20 times, but I've never heard of it. And I said, I have a good friend there. And told him about the church. And he said, you know, he said, Pastor Chapel, I've been watching Lancaster Baptist Church. He said, I watch those college kids when they come up and down the streets. He said, I see them in Starbucks. He said, there's something different about those kids. And uh, he said, I I'd like it if my teenagers would grow up to be like some of those college kids. And I said, well, the difference is Jesus Christ, Ricky. And after a little while, I was able to lead Ricky to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, in part because he'd been watching. And I want you to see this as we close. 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your what? And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is within you in meekness and fear, having a, having a good conscience. That whereas they speak evil of you. And by the way, they will. I told you that in my introduction. They're going to speak evil of you. Whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, listen, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Students, I just want to challenge you with this. And this message is not a guilt trip. This is a challenge to live your life with a conscience. You, you have a conscience. The Holy Spirit touches your conscience. 
with a conscience that is void of offense toward, say it with me, God and man. So how you doing? It's that simple. Is there something in your heart that you know is not right with God? Listen, if there is, that's why we have an altar call. Why would you let a defiled conscience become an evil conscience, become a wicked conscience? Why would you let that happen to yourself? Why would you get to the place where you could leave your wife? Why would you get to the place where you could smoke marijuana? Why would you get to the place where you could openly blaspheme God and never think about it? Why would you get to that place when you could make it right today if there's something in your heart that's not right with God? then deal with it today. And then, let's make it practical. Practical. What about being right with men? Don't say, well, I don't care what that guy in my dorm thinks. You should. You should have a testimony that's right with him. How's your testimony in the dorm? How's your testimony at work? How's your testimony at home? Do you have a good conscience towards your younger brother? Do you have a good conscience towards your parents? Do you have a good conscience where you work? Is everything good there? Because Paul said, as he was surrounded by the powers of the day, you guys can say what you want, but I know what I know because I exercise myself to do this every day, to have a good conscience toward God and toward men. And let me just just close by saying, that's a great way to live, and that's a great way to die right with God, and right with men. And so I just want to challenge you today to have that conscience, to manifest that conscience, and to have some rules or standards to help you keep that conscience, not because it's about rules, but because it's about living for Jesus, a life that is true. May God help us to have that conscience.